me, let me take a moment to invite you to grab your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is a little more than halfway through your Bible. You will run past the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, and you will run into a collection of names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you don't have your Bible this morning, or you don't own a Bible, can I encourage you to raise your hand? One of our ushers would love to bring you a Bible, and these Bibles are a gift from us to you. These are yours to have and to keep. We do encourage you to bring something to write with each week so you can circle and highlight. And by the time we're done with this nine-week series, you should drop your Bible to the floor and it'll turn right to Matthew chapter 5, which is where we're going to spend all of our time today throughout this series as well. 2010 was the last speeding ticket or traffic ticket I got. I had just finished preaching. My wife Stacy gave me three of our four children, Autumn, Caden, and Talon. We were in my Honda Civic and as we made our way from church to home, which was less than two miles away, and literally two turns out of the parking lot, I had made this route, this trip, countless times over the last two and a half years leading up to that moment in time. This day was a little unique in that we got in the vehicle, and I was feeling really great about what God had done in the message that morning. I was feeling really great about our ministry. I was feeling really great about the kids. We were excited. It was a bright, sunny day, which happens about three times a year in Oregon. It was awesome. On the radio... The song Shine from Newsboys came on. And my kids asked what that was. And I said, oh, I'm glad you asked. And I cranked it up. And before we knew it, as I pulled out of the parking lot, my children said the most important words any children can say to their parent. Beat mom home. <laughs> Beat mom home. And being the good father that I want to be, I felt it an obligation to oblige. And so we got into the vehicle, and I, sure enough, it was a standard. I went from second gear to third gear, and I started down the road, and the music was going. I wasn't even speeding. That's the ironic part about this, is I wasn't even speeding. I was going 35 miles an hour down this main stretch of road, and I was singing, and we were blaring the music, and the sunroof was open, and I was teaching the kids the words of the song, shine, make them wonder what you got, make them wish that they were not on the outside looking board. And as we went through this song, all of a sudden, as I looked up in the rear view mirror to do two things, one, determine how far behind me their mother was, and two, to adjust my aviator glasses, I noticed in my rear view mirror police lights, red and blue, convinced that I was merely in their way, so that they could get where they needed to go, I proceeded to pull over. Imagine my surprise when the police officer stopped behind me. I rolled down my window. The officer came up, and he said, Good afternoon. Sir, do you know why I stopped you? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, Well, just back there was a stop sign, and you blew right through it. A stop sign that was right in front of the other local church in town, literally right in front of the church. A stop sign that was a three-way stop, a stop sign that I had stopped at consecutively day after day after day after day as I was making my way to church. There was a stop sign that I was well aware was there, but I had for whatever reason been so distracted that I disregarded the stop sign. And it wasn't malicious. I didn't look at the stop sign and say, ha, that's a stop sign, and keep going. 
I didn't even see the stop sign because Newsboys was on. (laughs) Because I knew where I needed to go and because my children said those three words, beats, mom, home. The officer came back after looking at my license and my insurance, my registration, and he said, what was going on? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, how did you even miss the stop sign? I was sitting right there. You didn't see me? Apparently, the officer was, was parked parallel at the three-way stop to where you could see in plain sight. And I said, I was listening to music, and I was adjusting my glasses, and I know I needed to get home. And my wife was behind me, and my kids said, beat your wife. And he said, well, you weren't even speeding. You just didn't stop. And I said, are, I, I, I asked, are you going to let me off with the warning? He said, I would, except you had the power to stop, and you didn't. And I thought, that's really stupid. The worst part of the entire thing is as I was stopped with Johnny Law Enforcement, my wife drove by (laughs) with all three of our children in my car and our baby was with her. And as I looked over as she was driving by, she literally waved, (laughs) literally waved and was laughing at me. I not only did not beat mom home, I was a little upset. It was a quiet ride home the rest of the way. When I asked the officer why he had to give me a ticket, he literally said, I don't have a choice. I have to give you a ticket. You had the power to stop, and you didn't. I said, but that makes no sense to me. He said, the problem is that that could have actually been a big detriment. That could have caused a lot of damage if somebody had turned out in front of you and you would have hit them. And we are, we are having so many problems with that intersection where people are disregarding the stop sign that there are all kinds of accidents happening, and we have no choice. When you have the power to stop and you choose not to, you get ticketed. And I thought, okay, that makes a little more sense. I still was unhappy. I showed up at court, got a fine, paid the fine, went to a uh, whatever class they made me go to so it wouldn't show up on my record. And I have not been pulled over since by the grace of God. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. <laughs> you know that means I have to drive slow this week because the Lord's going to be testing me. <laughs> but it got me thinking about today's message. And I wonder how often, even though we have the power to stop something in our lives, we choose not to. How often, even though we have the power to stop something in our lives, we're so distracted by the things in our periphery. Or maybe it's not even in our periphery. We're so sidetracked by what we want, what our desire is, that we superimpose our desire on everybody and everything else around us, even at the expense of obeying God and honoring others. Where we just blow right through the stop signs that God gives us in our lives for our benefit and for the benefit of others. That's what we're going to look at today as we study the third of nine Beatitudes. There's actually what we call eight plus one. In Matthew chapter five, there's eight Beatitudes. The ninth is a reiteration of number eight and kind of a collection of the whole. You can read that if you'd like. Jesus has begun his public ministry. He starts out doing three things throughout the region of Galilee, which is over 200 towns and villages with a collection of over 300,000 people. He starts out teaching in the synagogues. He starts out proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is here in him. And he starts out by meeting physical needs, by healing all those who were diseased and ill and sick. He was meeting physical needs before he introduced them to their spiritual need. Jesus was going to the epicenter of each of these communities. He was going where people were gathering three times a day for prayer. 
the synagogue was what you and I might consider a local place of worship, like a church we have today. They would go and they would celebrate through music. They would celebrate through the reciting of scriptures. They would celebrate through uh, various religious acts. And then they would learn. And it was a community center. It was a hub. It was what the intention of the church was. is to be a place for the community to gather together to learn about God and to grow in their faith together. Jesus was more interested about meeting the needs of the few than he ever was about having a crowd or a following. As Jesus grew in stature and as he grew in notoriety, people began to gather from all over Galilee, from the Decapolis, which is another way of saying the ten towns, and from throughout Jerusalem and Judea and, 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 and the surrounding areas. Jesus got away often to pray, and in one instance, he got away to teach his disciples. And here, in his first public sermon, which is recorded by the disciple Matthew, he's going to go up on the side of a mountain. There on the side of a mountain, he's going to sit, and the disciples will sit at his feet, which was customary and traditional for rabbis to have disciples or pupils that would sit under their teaching. There, Jesus, with the natural amphitheater of the landscape and the surrounding, would teach these truths. And the first truths, the first three truths, are countercultural. They are countercultural to everything that everyone in society, religious and non religious alike, male, female, rich, poor, understood. And he's going to take these and he's going to flip them upside down. He's going to shake them around and he's going to realign how they think. And here's, if there's a premise for this entire series, if there's a purpose for this series, it is threefold. We are going to learn about the Beatitudes, which literally mean be attitude or a choice. That's all about our attitudes. And when our attitudes align with Christ, they lead to a change in our actions which over time and done consistently will ultimately become Christian attributes. Attitudes in Christ will eventually affect our actions and when done consistently over time will create new attributes by which people identify Christ in us and through us how we live. That is why we are in this nine series because we want to have the attitude of Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul says. Each one of you should have the attitude of Christ. We want to have the attitude of Christ which will drive a change to our actions or in our actions. And church consistently done over time, they will become attributes much like blonde hair, blue eyes that people identify us by. That's what we want to talk about today. Week one, we looked at the poor in spirit. We talked about how culturally everyone had worked to maintain and gain as much as they possibly could. It was about stature. It was about wealth. It was about identity. We talked about how Jesus then addressing rich folk in this group as well as poor folk. He says, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. That got all their attention right away. And we talked about what poor in spirit was. That it was a matter of moving away from self-dependency, depending on myself to provide all of my needs according to my own riches. And moving to soul sufficiency. To the soul supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in our lives. Last week, if you were here, we talked about blessed are those who mourn. And again, we talked about how Jesus took a parallel. He took a word picture that they all would have identified with because they had professional paid mourners that were really good at mourning the loss of a loved one, displaying grief and turmoil. And in this instance, Jesus was talking about mourning ourselves, mourning our own brokenness, mourning the state that we had created in ourselves, the insufficiencies, the inadequacies. And the idea was threefold. We looked at the Apostle Paul when he said, what I want to do, I don't want to do, or I don't do what I do, I don't want to do. Why do I do the things that I don't want to do? It's no longer me. It's sin living in me. Oh, what a wretchless man I am. Who can save me from this death? Praise God. 
The answer is Jesus Christ. And we looked at three things. We said, number one, in order for us to mourn our broken selves, we've got to get real with where we're at. Number two, we have got to accept responsibility for the brokenness in our lives. Quit passing it off as something that it's not or passing it on to others who do not need the blame. And the third thing, once you recognize where you're at and you accept responsibility, we talked about the value of getting out of there and following Jesus on the way. Today we're going to talk about God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth. I want to encourage you guys to follow along in your text with me. We're going to begin each and every week with the whole context, Matthew 4, 23. And today we're going to read through Matthew 5, 5. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about Jesus spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea, and from east of the Jordan River. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them, saying, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Moving away from self-dependency and into soul sufficiency, the supremacy of Jesus in our lives. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That when we recognize the depravity of our own lives, the broken nature that we've created and have lived in, and we call it out, and we ask God to forgive us, that he will comfort us. And today, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is powerful, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it is faithful, that it is a place in which we, we draw sustenance and we can live and move in our faith because of what you've given us in your perfect word, that it is active and alive, and that as we live it out, it's being written in our hearts today. And Lord, I pray over these next few moments that we have together, that you would redeem our time for your glory, that you would capture our hearts, that you would change our minds, that as we encounter you, our lives would be changed forever through these moments, Father. And I pray that the words of my mouth, as they are preached with authenticity and integrity, and that the words of our hearts, the meditations of our hearts, would be holy, and that they would be pleasing to you, God. May this be an act of offering and worship. Amen. God blesses those who are humble. This is one of the few times where the New Living Translation doesn't do justice to the word that is in the original language. In the original language, the Greek language, the word is prowess. Prowess has four different connotations or meanings. Mild, prowess represents being gentle. Prowess represents being humble. But the most likely and the most in alignment with the original language is the word meek. God blesses the meek. God blesses the meek for they will inherit the earth. The whole earth. 
And the problem when we read a text like this is that we have the propensity to reimagine the word meek and equate it with a cultural term weak. That God blesses the weak. It's not a It's not an idea that we're too familiar with. It's not a whole lot that we see in movies. It's not a whole lot that we hear in conversations. It's not a whole lot that we are brought up in through our families, through our sports. I can't imagine a scenario in which a movie like Gladiator, where Russell Crowe goes in and he says, my name is Gluteus Maximus and I am the commander of such and such an army and I command a force of such and such and I have killed the thousands upon thousands and I'm blessed because I'm weak. This is a, a paradox. We are taught from an early age that the strongest survive. We've seen that throughout adaptation for thousands of years. We understand the, the value and the power of strength in numbers. We look at power and we, we think that weak is the opposite. But what does scripture say about humility? What does scripture say about gentleness? What does scripture say about the meek? There are a few things that are absolutely imperative that we understand from this passage today. This is an instance where like Paul last week when addressing the church in Rome, when he says this is a principle of life, much like the law of gravity, what goes up must come down. Jesus is speaking to a principle of life that everyone there would have identified with, readily identified with. Let me give an example. I have a dream. Who said that? Martin Luther King. King. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Who said that? John John F. Kennedy. Jesus, as he's talking to The masses is talking to a group of religious leaders in the Pharisees. And he's talking to a conglomerate of other people. The one thing that they have in common is that all of them would have likely been familiar with Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as well as the books of wisdom at some level. So what Jesus does here is he literally pulls a passage of scripture which is seen multiple times, five times in the Psalms alone. Now the Psalms are spiritual hymns, poems, songs, and praises. He pulls initially from Psalm 37, 11. And so as Jesus is talking to the group, he is speaking to which they know a lot about or what they think that they understand. Remember last week, if you were here and I gave an illustration about being confident that something was one way, only to find out that it was drastically different than you had expected. And I talked about how when I was in New York City, we were at Planet Hollywood and my wife and I were having dinner and I went to wash my hands in what I thought to be the men's restroom, only to be shocked and surprised when a woman came out of the stall. (laughs) Jesus is talking to A group of people that have lived their entire lives thinking and believing one truth about humility, about being meek. They have grown up in a system and a society where culturally it's all about Caesar. Culturally it's all about establishing Rome 
as the greatest powerhouse the known world has ever experienced. Culturally, it's all about more money, more power, more possessions, and a bigger persona. It's about the haves and the have-nots. And the way culturally that this has played out for generations is that the strongest have survived. That those in authority have oppressed the have-nots. That those in positions of power and authority have not only stepped over or stepped around, but they have stepped on the least of these to accomplish their ambitions, their goals, and to realize their dreams and their desires. These are religious leaders who know the law. They know the words of God, Yahweh. And yet they choose to superimpose their power, their position, their authority on others to accomplish their end goal. And they lose sight of what matters most. The word prowess in the Greek is used three times, three different examples anyway, throughout Scripture. The first way that this word is used is that of a doctor who has a healing balm and the ability to heal or to bring soothing. The second example or way that it's used in context of Scripture is that of a sailor, his ship, and the winds. That the winds have the ability to control movement. And this word is a calming wind. It's not a storm, but it's a, it's a calm. The third way is that of a bridled horse, a broken horse. That is bridled and broken and brought into direction. It comes under submission and authority. The one thing that each one of these has in common is that they all represent power under control. Power under control. They all have tremendous power to control things. You think about going back to a doctor. A doctor has, as they take a Hippocratic oath, the ability to use not only his knowledge but the resources given to him to heal, but if misappropriated, it can tremendously hurt. We've heard stories in the news about doctors who have used medicine to hurt, that have misappropriated their skill, their knowledge, and their resources to benefit themselves financially or some other way. But its original intention is to bring healing. We've all heard about the power of a storm, Hurricane Katrina, is an example. Some of us felt in moderation the power of winds just weeks ago as 60 mile an hour winds came through Blair. The greatest example I know of is a friend of mine who has a rental house. A tree broke off, a, a, a huge branch broke off and ended up going through their roof. The wind can control direction. The wind can give power. The wind can drive things. But a calming wind is representative of peace. The third example is that of a, of a, of a stallion or, or a purebred, a thoroughbred. This horse that has tremendous power. And yet, when bridled, when brought under control, power under control, it can be useful for carrying, for plowing, for uh, uh, dragging and bringing. There are all kinds of things that it is good for and useful for. Jesus, knowing his audience, 
knowing full well culture and context, knowing scripture, talks about a concept that they had been familiar with, but he's going to flip it upside down and he's going to challenge not only the least of these to encourage them, but he's going to challenge those who have been oppressing others to accomplish their own individual gain. What he's saying essentially, if I can put it bluntly, is even though you have the power to do what it is you're doing, stop it. Stop oppressing. Stop bullying the least of these. Stop marginalizing people. Stop using people as a resource to accomplish your end game. Stop getting so distracted with where you want to end up that you forget about what matters most. Stop it. It's like me when I got ticketed for blowing a stop sign. I was distracted with where I wanted to be. I was distracted with my motivation to get there, that I needed to beat mom home. I was distracted by the music. I was distracted by all of the things going on around me. And even though I had the power to stop, I didn't. And what that was was detrimental. It did not, but it posed imminent danger. Had somebody been there, I could have done irreparable damage by superimposing my own desires, my own uh, agenda on, on others, and it could have ended poorly. By the grace of God, he was looking out for that moment, and it didn't, other than my pocketbook and my pride when I got home and Stacy said, how was that conversation? <laughs> I need to ask you to think about this for just a moment. And I'm going to ask it in about the only way I know how. How many of us at one time or another, if we do some introspection and we're really, really honest would have to admit that we've superimposed our own desires on others and we've actually used people for our own personal gain. How many of us, if we were really honest, have taken advantage of someone to accomplish what it was we wanted to achieve in our lives? How many of us, if we're really honest, have chosen to forego power under control in order to superimpose our own desires on others. That we wanted what we wanted and we were willing to do whatever it took to get there. Much like blowing a stop sign, the ramifications can be irreparable. When we use people to accomplish our end game, it ruins relationships. When we use people to accomplish our gain, it destroys reputation. When we use people to get where we want to go, we lose sight of whose we are and who we are in Christ. Church, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious. I, by nature, am an ambitious person. Ambitious? Ambitious person. I sat with one of my professors this last week, and we did a, an entire study of the book of Ecclesiastes. It was pretty incredible. <laughs> and the thing that he wanted to point out to me was kind of twofold. He said, you are so ambitious, and I'm absolutely blown away and astounded about what God is doing in your context of ministry. But in your ambition, you're missing the bigger picture, which is enjoying what God is allowing you to be a part of. That wrecked me. 
literally, I have not been able to think about much more than that. He basically said, man, go to work, do your job, go home and enjoy your family. Enjoy the fruits of the ministry. Quit thinking about what's next. Just enjoy the moment. I said, shut up, hit him, and I walked out. <laughs> okay, that didn't happen. I wanted to. And it wrecked me. I was convicted that I don't practice this meekness. That I have always viewed meekness as a sign of weakness. And yet, I could not think of a a bigger juxtaposition because do you know what kind of strength it takes to have the power but to harness it and control it? So Jesus says, guys, God blesses you when you're meek, when you're humble, when you're gentle, when you're mild. Because you inherit the earth, the whole earth. It's power under control. He quotes from Psalm 3711, something that they all understand, and he fundamentally gets a hold of their hearts and shakes them up. And as I studied this passage of Scripture this week, as I, as I just molded over in my own mind, in my own heart, my own life, there are three things that jump from the pages of Scripture at me. Three things that I want to share with you that I hope will captivate you in a way that causes you to reflect and reflect in a way that leads to not only a change in your attitude, but a change in your actions, which over time and done consistently will become an attribute of a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Three things that Jesus does here, at least three that I see. The first, the first is that he calls out those who abuse power. He calls them out. He calls them out. He doesn't pony punches. He doesn't say it in a way that makes him feel warm and fuzzy. He calls out those who abuse power for their own gain. The second thing he does is he talks about perspective. The reason that these individuals, the Pharisees in this context, and if I'm being really honest, us, the reason that we abuse power is because we don't have a proper perspective. We're so focused on beating mom home and allowing outside influences to distract us that we lose sight of the big picture. We lose sight of what matters most. In this context, the Pharisees and even the least of these they weren't concerning themselves with things of heaven. They were consumed with Israel. They were consumed with their own land. And so here, Jesus said, God blesses you when you're meek, when you're humble, when you're gentle, when you're mild, because you're going to inherit the entire earth. When they hear this, they're thinking about the soil that they're standing on. They're thinking about the power of Caesar. They're thinking about the power of Rome. They're thinking about the power of their own position, their own place in life. They're consumed with what's in front of them. So consumed, in fact, that they have used and abused others around them to accomplish their gain. In the story I told to begin with, I was consumed with beating Stacy home to the point where I ignored a clear signal to stop. I was more concerned about what was in the moment than I was about the big picture. 
And it's a silly example that we can look back on and laugh at now. But I wonder how many of us in our lives are so consumed with the moment that we lose sight of our mission. How many of us are so caught up about financial gain right now that we lose sight of what Jesus says? Blessed are you when you care for the least of these, the marginalized, the misrepresented, the mistreated, and the misplaced. When you feed those who are hungry, when you give to those who are thirsty, when you clothe those who are naked, when you visit those who are sick, we, we have a, a gain in mind. We have a position that we want to hold in mind. And we, we even negotiate with ourselves. We negotiate with others. We say, when we accomplish this, well, then we'll start meeting those needs. But that's not how Jesus calls us to be. Jesus calls us to care for the least of these. And that's just one example. How many other examples are in our lives where we're so consumed about what we want here and now that we lose sight of what matters most? Do you know what Jesus was talking about and referring to when he said, the whole earth is yours? He was referring to Revelation 21 when he talks about the new heaven and the new earth. So he does two things in one moment. He condemns those who are consumed with the earth here and he encourages those who are mistreated, who are misrepresented, who are misplaced and who are marginalized. He says, look, yes, in your meekness, people may take advantage of you. Yes, in your humility, people may walk on you, around you, or over you. Yes, in your gentleness, people may push you around. But take heart. Because of your humility, because of your meekness, you will inherit something so much bigger. There's a bigger perspective at play here. The whole earth, the new heaven and the new earth, it's promised to you. Keep your eyes fixed and focused on the prize, Peter says, of this earth. Don't hold on too tightly, church. Listen, we're just foreign aliens and temporary residents. We're just vessels. We're a mist. We're a mist. We're a vapor. My professor this last week said, quit, quit chasing after the mist. Quit striving after the wind. He challenged me. He said, Andrew, what good is it if you accomplish everything you set out to accomplish in ministry here in Blair, Nebraska, but your kids don't know their dad? You're striving after the mist. He challenged me. He said, you don't think that God can establish his kingdom without you? Maybe, just maybe he wants to work in and through you to establish his kingdom and he wants you to show others how to enjoy what he's doing in and through you guys. Church, I apologize. I'm sorry. For the last 18 months, arguably the last 21 years of my life, I've been living in sin. The sin is I've so desperately wanted to accomplish something to be valuable in Jesus' eyes that I have sacrificed a lot of things to get where I wanted to go. And I'm sorry if I've misrepresented a humility that leads people to Jesus. I want to promise you that even though I'm in second gear right now, I'm not staying here. We will get to sixth gear. It's just going to look a little different from my leadership. The third thing, after he addresses the power and the perspective is he addresses surrender. Humility is all about setting aside our desires 
in favor of God's directive. Come on. Humility is all about setting aside our desires in favor of God's directives. I wrote down two questions that I want to read to you that I'm working through. The first is this. Andrew, what do you need to stop doing that's distracting you from doing the things that God's called you to in your life? What is the beat mom home in your life right now? What is the blaring newsboys shine at the top of your stereo distracting you, keeping you from God calling you to in your life right now? What do you need to stop doing? Power under control. You have the power to keep doing what you're doing, but for honest, it's not working. Or it might be working for the moment, but it's fleeting. Can't take it with you. What about the more important things? The second thing is, what do you need to surrender? Because stopping is all about surrendering. I didn't surrender my will at that stop sign. I cared more about winning than I did about the will of God. And so my question is, what do you need to surrender to God? And what do you need to let go of that has been keeping you from a place of true humility in your life and with others? What do you need to surrender? Power under control. Arguably, God's given you the resources to get where you need to go. The natural gifts to accomplish those things. The opportunity for education so you know how to do it. He's afforded you all the privilege to take the steps necessary to get where you're going. And how many of us cling to those things until we get to the place where we say, hey God, I've got this. You're doing a good job up there. You hang out up there. Let me manage this here. Because surrendering, at least in our culture, is an absolute sign of weakness. But what if I told you? What if I told you that the greatest the greatest demonstration of strength was absolute and total surrender to Jesus. You know, I joke about Pastor Jeff and wrestling. There's a mentality that wrestlers have. It's innate. It's, it's beat into them. And it may work in the moment for six minutes and high school or seven minutes in college. You don't want to show a sign of weakness. You don't, you don't want to be last. You, don't, you, you always push through. And I've, I've taken that and I've run with it in my life. And I've tried to apply those principles. And there's some principles in wrestling that I've applied to my life that have allowed me to go through things that I wouldn't have survived otherwise. But the one thing that wrestling didn't do me any favors in was recognizing that surrendering would be the greatest place of strength in my life. Culturally, we've been sold a bad bill of goods. And I'm here to confess to you that I've had it wrong for far too long and to tell you that I'm sorry. 
But I also want to challenge you to ask the two questions that I'm asking. What do you need to stop doing so that you can start doing the thing God's called you to do? Seriously, what do you need to stop doing so that you can start doing the things that God's called you to? And what do you need to surrender to in your life? What do you need to surrender over in your life to God so that you can have a right perspective about what matters most? Not about the here and now, but about eternity. And by the way, there's something unique about, I want to leave this thought with you as I go. There's something unique about caring for the orphans and the widows. It requires humility. It requires an intentional gentleness, a meekness, a softness. It requires humbling ourselves to the point where we forfeit that with which we've worked so hard to accomplish financially and in other areas of our lives. But it's, it's in those sacrifices that I think truly we experience the heart of God most. And we're practicing for what eternity is going to be like. Looking out for one another. Caring for each other. Demonstrating and showing consistently love for one another. If not love, then what? I love you, church. I'm excited about what God's doing in us and through us. And right now I'm excited that as we begin to allow God to move in us, the Holy Spirit will change our attitudes. And as he changes our attitudes, it will lead to a change in actions. And church, when we do these things consistently over time, they will become attributes by which the world knows us by. And that is my prayer. Amen.